What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Stack Strength Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel DeBrock. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, today is going to be a little bit of a different episode. Today, I'm actually by myself doing a Q&A episode. I've never done this before. I've had a lot of requests since the uh, since the the beginning of the podcast to do Q and A episodes, but it hasn't really been something that I've wanted to do, and I just wasn't sure on how it would be received. But there have been enough people who have asked, so I thought I'd give it a shot. Now I'm not sure if this is going to be a returning segment or if this is just sort of a one off or just kind of whenever I feel like it kind of thing. But at any rate, I appreciate you guys tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform uh, you prefer. Make sure you give us a five-star rating so that we can help promote the podcast and continue getting better resources, better education into the hands of athletes and coaches so you guys can get better results in your training, diet, sports performance in general. So let's dive right into the Q&A. So the first question is, what's your opinion on the success of eating on a meal plan versus a behavioral-based approach? Now, first off, I'm going to disclose my own personal bias on this. I've never written a meal plan for anyone in my life. I don't write meal plans, uh, and, and I have a handful of reasons for that. Now, that being said, I am not going to disparage anyone who does write a meal plan. I think that there's absolutely times where that can be very beneficial. However, in the vast majority of cases, I do see that as being... Um, you know, having a, a little bit, being a little bit problematic for a couple of reasons that I'll explore in a moment. So if someone does write meal plans or anything like that, definitely not a knock at them. This is just my own personal preference. But one of the reasons why I generally don't like writing meal plans, the first reason is because when we look at the literature, the literature has a couple of I, has identified a, a couple of variables that seem to predict dietary failure or dietary recidivism. And one of these is what's called rigid restraint. So restraint is actually a very positive thing. You need to exercise restraint in order to prioritize certain foods, in order to you know stay away from foods that aren't necessarily going to take you to your goal, and you need to prioritize the ones that are. And you know within that entire process throughout the day, that does require a significant amount of restraint, or at least it can. Now, restraint is good. That is a very important skill to have, but there's a difference between rigid and flexible restraint. So rigid restraint would be, you have a meal plan, here's exactly what you eat, zero deviation. Well, what happens if you're traveling? What happens if you, if, if you come across you know, an individual's birthday or a holiday or a wedding or something like that? How are you going to stick to your diet? And that becomes a real problem because a lot of people have lives and so they need to maintain a balance. And if they don't have the actual skills developed to maintain their diet while still having some flexibility and some room to adapt to you know, changing circumstances, that can become very difficult to actually stay on, on, on track to hit your goals and not backslide. So in a lot of ways, meal plans are just a little bit too rigid because they don't offer any sort of measure of flexibility or adaptability. Uh, now that's generally speaking, okay? So that, that's one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of meal plans in general. Uh, the second thing is that it actually doesn't really teach the individual how to eat. It doesn't teach them about nutrition. It doesn't really teach them about their own behaviors, their own craving signals. It doesn't teach them about their environment or any of these things that actually impact uh, dietary behavior. 
So that's another big element that I think is very important. When we look at successful athletes, when we look at individuals who have sustainably, you know, lost weight or put on muscle or improved their athletic performance by cleaning up their diet, whatever it is, these individuals are usually very in tune with their diet, with their body, and that is a learned skill, right? So if you have a meal plan, you don't really get the opportunity to learn that, at least not to the same degree. So that's another big, big reason why I'm generally not a big fan of meal plans. Again, not disparaging anyone who likes to use it. Obviously, my way is not the only way, but that's just my personal experience and opinion on the subject. Now, as far as a behavioral approach goes, I'm a really big fan of taking a client-centered approach. And what that means essentially is that everything that happens has to be predicated on the individual, their context, their goals, what they're capable of doing, and what they actually agree to do. And that's very important because an individual might have a goal to, let's say, put on 15 pounds of muscle, but they might have lifestyle variables that they're not necessarily willing to give up. Let's say going out on the weekends with friends and you know all this other stuff that could potentially crop up. Now, they might still consider their goal of, of 20 pounds of, of muscle gain to be a very important goal, but they also don't necessarily want to lose out on their, their social life. So we will have to find a balance. And it's not necessarily just fair to say, well, give it up, right? Give it all up and whatever, right? So we need to make sure we're negotiating that with the individual. And that is where a client-centered approach is very different from a lot of other approaches. It actually includes them in the process. The intention is to build up self-efficacy, build up skill, build up awareness, build up education, and empower them to actually eat according to their goals while still integrating their diet into their lifestyle and not having it completely and radically change it. Now, your diet might change and your lifestyle might change radically over time, you know, if you look 10 years down the road, but it's not radical in terms of, okay, today you're eating like shit and then tomorrow onwards you're perfect. That's never really how people are successful with, with diets or really anything in life. So this approach kind of allows a little bit more of a runway for progression. So let's say hypothetically, you have an individual who's got a history of dieting, chronic dieting, um, you know, fluctuating weight, all of the stuff, right? And then you put them on a meal plan. Again, they're just going to do the same shit. They're going to lose the weight and then they're going to regain it back. Whereas if we have a behavioral approach, we say, okay, let's try and look at what the big stones are. What are the big stones that we can turn over that are going to have the biggest impact on your results while having the least amount of friction in your life? That might be getting them to eat six combined servings of roots and veggies per day. So these are examples that I usually like to give because they're pretty easy to understand. By forcing them to eat these things, they're necessarily going to decrease caloric intake in other areas. So I'm not restricting anything. I'm pushing food. I'm putting things into their, into their food or into their diet, sorry. And inadvertently, they end up eating less. Like nine times out of 10, they end up eating less just by doing that. Then we may add in some protein and say, hey, you know what? I want you eating uh, four servings of, of lean protein per day, and I'll quantify what a serving is. Now, if they have a goal of losing 50 pounds, man, that's a big goal, and that's a long way away, potentially. Whereas, if I give them a goal of, hey, I want you to eat X amount of servings of fruits and veggies and, and lean protein and whatever else the other goals are, well, that's a goal that they can check off every single day. And if they know that the eventual goal of loss of 50 pounds is an outgrowth of their actions and behaviors, man, that's a really motivating thing. And it helps build up self-efficacy. It builds up um, you know, self-belief. It, it builds up client autonomy, competency, and their level of relatedness because I'm actually listening to them and giving them things that they can succeed on instead of just setting the bar super high and being like, well, you better fucking make it. Or if you don't, you're going to drown, right? So I'm actually walking with them. I'm listening to them. You're, you're, you're taking what they say into consideration. Now, this is not hand-holding. 
This is not coddling. I want to be very clear about that. You are going to give them goals that challenge them and that make them better, but they have to be achievable. They have to be within their capacity. And that's very important. So there's that kind of, you know, that's, that's more of an experience level thing. You're not going to learn that from research or from school. That is purely an experience thing. Just being a good coach and being a good communicator. So <laughs> that's basically um, one of the reasons why I prefer a behavioral approach uh, with all of my clients. Now, that being said, I do have athletes who are high level athletes and very, very experienced with dieting and things like that. So I have their nutrition program really dialed in, like their macros throughout the day are all accounted for. Their um, nutrient timing strategy is completely accounted for, supplementation, everything, down to the gram of each macro per meal, whatever. And I will absolutely work on food composition and the food quality uh, that they're actually consuming. So I'll get them every now and then to, to maybe print off what it is that they're actually eating. And then we'll look at it and say, okay, instead of eating this, I actually want you eating this for your pre-workout because it's going to do A, B, and C, blah, blah, blah. And then we, again, just kind of negotiate, is that okay? Do you prefer something else? Here's what we're trying to accomplish, blah, blah, blah. And, and we keep refining it that way. So that still is not a meal plan that still offers a lot of flexibility, but I will absolutely make recommendations based on food quality uh, and specific food items because it will have a, a, a higher benefit to the individual, potentially for athletic performance. So um, yeah, that's, uh, that's basically how I see those two approaches differing, uh, at least partly anyways. And then um, that, that's why I choose the behavioral approach generally. Um, next question is what is the best metric to use for intermediate and advanced athletes or lifters? Sorry. Um, so there is no best metric, right? If, if you imagine, if you look at athlete monitoring like this, every metric that you use is a data point, right? One data point doesn't really tell us a whole lot because what if that's, what if there's an error, what's the margin for error for each data point? That, that, that's a really significant thing to know. But then beyond that, one data point doesn't tell us the full picture. It's just one piece to the puzzle. So the way that I like to explain this to people is if you're looking at athlete monitoring, each metric that you monitor is basically like a flashlight. You have a flashlight and you're walking through a dark tunnel. Now, I can move the flashlight side to side and kind of see my surroundings, but the aperture will only open up so much. So I can only really see so much of my surroundings. But if I had another metric, boom, now I expand the aperture. So now the light is actually shining more and I can see more of my surroundings. I add another metric or variable to measure and now I can see more. And we just continue doing that until we have a clear picture of the surroundings. Now that brings up another question. What metrics do you choose, right? How do you know which metric to choose for an athlete? Well, this goes back to understanding your, your client or your athlete, or if you're a self-coach, understanding what you excuse me, your own goals are. You have to do a proper needs analysis. Oh, thirsty. Sorry, guys. Um, you have to do proper needs analysis. And then that's basically going to inform what it is that you need to track, right? So if, if I'm looking at uh, an individual, let's say, I'll just pull one of my actual existing athletes, right? So um, this athlete is a small female lifter, very, very, very strong. Um, incredibly busy with work, um, has a lot on her plate and uh, is, is, is a very, yeah, is a very high level athlete, right? So what are some of the things that I might monitor for this individual? Well, this individual generally is very high stress. 
Okay, so I'm monitoring both objective and subjective metrics. I'm monitoring mood, perceived levels of stress. I'm monitoring her perception of training. I'm monitoring her body weight on a daily basis and looking at the weekly average to identify trends. I'm looking at her, uh, the hours of sleep or time in bed is usually what I'll measure. I'm looking at her diet, this particular individual. Um, I do her, her nutrition as well. So I look at her macronutrient composition every single day and we have certain targets that we wanna hit for that. I look at um, her, her actual videos that she submits and I look at the quality of her lists and I um, will uh, rank her fatigue and sleepiness. We have like a sleepiness score um, and then any pain or aches or anything like that that she's experiencing, any additional concerns. Um, there, so there's a whole host of things as well as like, and so a lot of those are subjective, some of them are objective. I also will track uh, for this particular individual a number of sets um, peak load, number of exposures to a, a load above a certain amount. So there's a variety of different things that I'm tracking, right? But none of those individual metrics really tell you a whole lot. And a great example of this is let's say we look at HRV. So HRV, heart rate variability, um, generally is thought to be associated with performance. So if you have a good HRV score, hey, you're going to perform really well today. If you don't have a good HRV score, hey, maybe you're a little under-recovered and we should probably take it easy. That's generally how it's looked at. But HRV can be super fucking inaccurate. Like we've all, every, every good experienced athlete has had a day where they have had shitty sleep and performed exceptionally well. Just look at a competition. No one sleeps well before a competition because everyone's nervous. So you know, in the vast majority of cases, people are going into competitions underslept, stressed out, and, and whatnot, yet they still perform very, very well. So is one night of bad sleep um, enough to, to augment your training, or is that, is that an indication that you should change your training? So it's not just enough to, to know what metrics to measure. You have to know what these metrics are actually telling you. And then beyond that, you have to know what to do about it. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's so important to collect many metrics, not a, like not tons. There, there's also a downside of collecting too much. We don't necessarily want a data overload. We just want to be able to identify where the athlete is at. So for me, the reason why I track metrics is I want to know, are they getting banged up or fatigued? Is their performance improving? How can we standardize the stimulus? And what sort of alterations do we need to make to ensure that we can continue seeing good progress? So I'm looking at markers of injury or potential injury risk. I'm looking at fatigue. I'm looking at all these things. And that's really what I'm trying to do. Can I continue to push this athlete and, and have the least amount of deloads, give them the least amount of stimulus with the most significant results coming from that, right? Because if I can get, get you to do, let's say, 10 sets of, of three versus, let's say, five sets of three, and they both produce the same results, well, I'm going to fucking get you to do five sets of three because it's half the work. And it's, it's not going to beat up your body as much. Now, that's obviously an exaggerated example, but these are things that I look at. So when it comes to, to athlete monitoring, you really have to know the athlete, what their goals are, what their objectives are. You have to know what you're trying to monitor in the first place. Like, what are you actually trying to learn by monitoring this? Because, okay, it's, it's all well and good to monitor sets per, per week, but what is that actually going to tell you? What are you trying to know about that, right? So you have to know the athlete, the goals, you have to know what you're going to track and why it's important. And then the last step is how are you going to act on it? So if you're, if you're, you know, if you're collecting all this data, 
what does it mean? What are you going to do with it? What does it inform you? What does it tell you needs to happen? So that's a very important part as well. And again, a lot of this stuff is, is, is skill and experience. And it's not, it's not something you're going to learn from reading in a textbook. Um, but hopefully that helps. And uh, yeah, that's basically all I have to say about that. Next question is what supplements are worth taking? Um, man, that's, that's, so this is a little bit vague. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're including PEDs. I'm not sure if you're talking just performance or body composition. I'm not sure if you're talking for health. So I don't know what you're talking about. So I'm just going to generally assume because uh, my listeners are typically uh, strength and physique focused, that's what I'm going to answer. That's my answer is going to be predicated on. So there's a couple um, supplements that are, that are worth taking that have a ton of research behind them. Uh, whey protein powder can be fantastic. This isn't necessarily performance enhancing or anything like that. But if you have a high protein intake and you really struggle to get it in, this can be a fantastic way to actually get your protein in. Hit your protein targets. So you're making sure that you're getting the most out of your, um, out of your nutrition as, as far as protein intake goes and frequency and feedings and all that jazz. Creatine is another fantastic one. There's a ton of literature on this to support the efficacy of this. This is kind of one of those silver bullet supplements. It's really funny because it seems to do everything. It helps with hypertrophy. It helps with strength. It helps with endurance. It helps with power output, helps with recovery, increases time to exhaustion, improves work capacity, um, appear, appears to, to improve cognitive function as well. So there's a lot of different benefits for it. So for hypertrophy, strength, power, just general athletic performance, creatine is a fantastic supplement. Um, and uh, yeah, you should probably get it. Carb powder is, is um, something that I do like. I like carbohydrate powder. It's not necessarily going to enhance your performance from the standpoint of like replenishing glycogen or anything like that. That's something that happens the day before, right? But the reason why I like carb powder during your actual training session is because especially if you have a really hard training session that could be maybe like two hours long or maybe even a little bit more if you're a powerlifter or a strongman, well, car powder can kind of stabilize your blood sugar. So if you're just sipping on it throughout the, uh, throughout the session, it can kind of keep your energy levels a little bit more stable. And rather than being like a big physiological benefit, mainly I've noticed that the psychological, right? You don't feel like you have the same big energy dip. Like let's say you've got a big squat day, you crush a bunch of squats and you're just fucking exhausted. But now you have to do your assistance work and all your accessories and all that shit. Well, man, you're probably going to be like, slacking a little bit going through the rest of it because you you're you push so hard on your squats right so carb powder can kind of help stabilize your energy and psychologically just help you feel a little bit better and maintain energy levels throughout um, so i think it can be very very helpful for that also um, just from a nutrient partitioning standpoint uh, even after it can help with um with with uh with with your recovery and, and things like that and even hydration status and all that jazz so it can be very beneficial for a lot of reasons but the main benefit like i said is stabilizing your energy levels throughout the training session uh just so you have a little bit more focus and you just feel better psychologically last one is caffeine so again this is not a very long list it's about four four supplements caffeine uh, has been shown to be an ergogenic aid a, a fairly strong ergogenic aid um, which is which is really cool. The dosing for that is about three to six milligrams per kilogram uh, of of body weight. So 100 kilogram individual will take um, you know 300 to 600 milligrams of caffeine about 45 minutes before their workout. Now there's a couple things to really consider here. Caffeine can be anxiogenic, which means can be anxiety causing. So if you're an individual who already has high anxiety 
you may want to watch out with using caffeine because that is a very high dosage to use to actually get that ergogenic aid. And it might just give you a little bit of a panic attack. <laughs> um, that's certainly something that I experienced. So I don't use caffeine because I'm already really amped up just in general. Uh, I have PTSD. And so I already have kind of a very high sympathetic tone to my nervous system. So I don't generally use caffeine. Um, but that is something to consider. Now, some people, it's not going to be an issue. Others will have an issue. So it really just depends. Feel free to go and experiment. It's not the end of the world. If you do have, you know, kind of a, a not so great experience, you just, okay, cool. Now I know it's not for me. So it's not a big deal. Um, another consideration is the half-life of, uh, of, of caffeine. So caffeine will stay in your system for, for quite a few hours afterwards. So, Essentially, if you're if you're consuming, you know, 300 to 600 milligrams, like, man, that can that can stay in your system for quite a while. So if you're working out like in the morning, it might not affect, you know, might not affect your sleep. But if you're working out in the evening and you're having all that caffeine, there is a possibility that can affect your sleep. Uh, if you're really sensitive to things like that, that could kind of compound it. So that is something to consider uh, as well. But those are the supplements that generally uh, have a ton of research to support them, are very, very high quality. And uh, for creatine, you want to make sure you're taking creatine monohydrate. I know people say that you should take five grams, but there's not really actually a lot of good research to, to sort of justify why five grams seems to be the, um, the, the generalizable recommendation. I usually say between five and 10 grams. If the, if the lifter is larger, you know, 10 grams, if the lifter is not as large, maybe five grams or 10 grams, it depends on, you know, what I think. But um, yeah, so that, those, those are kind of the, the recommendations for, for that. Um, next question, if I can't sleep eight hours a day, what can I do to prevent slower gains? So I think one thing is, is really important to understand. There does come a point where you just like you can't make up for something, right? I get these questions a lot, you know, what, what can I do if I can only train one day a week? What can I do if I can only do this? And I, you know, and I want to get a six pack, whatever, 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 right? But there is a, there is like a, a minimum threshold that you do have to reach, right? And I think a lot of the times people forget that they're like, I can only work out one day a week for 30 minutes. What do I do? And it's like, well, I can tell you what you do but you're not going to put anything on your squat. Like you're, you're, you're not going to squat an extra hundred pounds at the end of the year. Like you're just not right. So there is a minimum threshold whereby if you do not meet that minimum criteria, you will not see progress. Okay. And that exists for everything from sleep from training frequency, diet adherence, all of that stuff. So that's just something that I want to kind of say, because I always get these questions you know, what can I do if I can't train well, or I can't train intelligently, or I can't blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, you got to fucking put in the work, right? Now, <clears throat> if you can't get eight hours of sleep a day, the first thing that I would do is I would do an inventory of your lifestyle. Okay. So generally speaking, if I see an athlete is really struggling with their sleep, and they say that they're extremely busy, nine times out of 10, they're actually not as busy as they think. And I coach a lot of very, very busy individuals, or at least I have, right? I've coached uh, surgeons, I've coached uh, individuals who are in medical school and who are having to, you know, just work insane hours during their, I can't remember if it's called like practicum, internship, whatever the fuck it's called, if you're, you know, in, in medicine. Um, but 
in each one of these cases, what we've done is we've done an inventory of how they're spending their day. What does your day actually look like? And we sit down together and we write it all down. You know, from this time I wake up and then I do this, then I do this, then I do this. And we look at how much time is dedicated to every single thing. Nine times out of 10, we could find a couple of hours, not just like 30 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, like a couple of hours we can find where they're just fucking doing nothing, like scrolling on Instagram or just kind of like watching Netflix or just doing something else. And here's the thing. I'm not going to say that you need to pack your day so that every single hour you're being the most efficient you can possibly be. That's not my call. That is your call. These are your goals. So once we do that, that's when we actually start having a conversation and begin negotiations. We say, okay, so looks like you're sleeping six and a half hours a day. We want to get you up to eight. Now we found three and a half hours of your day that spent basically jerking off doing nothing. So how much time can we take away from those things without negatively impacting your life? Sometimes they'll say, you know what? I'm not willing to give up any of it. And that's perfectly fine. All that I do is I just say, okay, that's fine. If that's what you want, perfectly fine. Just so you know, Here's the trade-off that you're making, because I'll always explain trade-offs. I don't believe that there is a right or a wrong. Your goals are your goals, and that's entirely your prerogative. But I will always explain the trade-offs, regardless of what they choose. So, okay, you're going to get six and a half hours sleep. This is what this means. Here's the research on sleep curtailment. Here's how it can impact you cognitively. Here's how it can impact your endocrine system. Here's how it can impact your... your um, physical performance, your recovery, your libido, blah, 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 blah. You know, now don't get too hung up on the six and a half hours. I'm just talking about sleep curtailment in general, right? But, you know, so I, I might say some of those things and I might be like, hey, you know what? You've been performing decently well and you've only been getting six and a half hours. Do I think you would perform better if you got eight plus? Absolutely. But then that would cost you all of these things, you know, spending more time with your kids, having time to like relax and watch your favorite TV show with your, with your partner, blah, 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 whatever it might be. So I'll explain those. And then if they're okay with the trade-offs, then we say, okay, whatever, we're good. And we just check it off and we move on. That's just one of the circumstances that we have. And we can always pick up that conversation down the road, but that's usually how I handle that. And a lot of the times we're not looking to make a radical change. Like, let's say he, you know, let's, I'm thinking of a particular individual in this example, right? Um, let's say that, that uh, my client said, Hey, you know what? Yes. I'm willing to sacrifice three hours and, you know, I'm, I'm ready to get all that extra sleep. I probably wouldn't tell him to get all that extra sleep right off the bat. I would just say, Hey, I just want you to get 30 minutes more sleep a day. <clears throat> let's just try that. And then he does that for a little bit. So instead of getting six and a half hours, he's getting seven now. And we might do that for a week or something like that. And then say, how do you feel? He's like, oh, I feel a little bit better. Okay, great. Now let's try getting seven and a half hours. You know, and it might take us like two months before we actually work up to, to full eight hours sleep. Now it might not, he might be able to just do it right off the bat if he's really tired and he really needs it. But, you know, my point is we don't need to jump right in. We can always do it in an iterative approach, okay? So that's, that's generally what I do if uh, an individual can't get eight hours sleep because you can, it's just a matter of prioritizing, right? Um, <clears throat> and uh, you can utilize naps. 
um, and, and different things like that throughout the day. Even just a 10 minute nap can actually have a pretty significant impact on uh, cognitive performance and, um, and, and even just physically how you feel. And if mentally you feel better, you're probably gonna get per, uh, perform a little bit better as well physically. So these are things to, to, <coughs> to kind of understand. Um, also, you know, adopting a um, proper sleep hygiene routine can be beneficial because now you're going to get better quality of sleep if you have a good sleep hygiene routine. So these are things like taking a hot shower before going to bed. Um, a hot shower will actually heat up your body and therefore force your body to cool itself, reducing your core temperature and making it easier for you to fall asleep. Sleeping in a cool room with no sound um, and, and that's very, very dark with no light, avoiding blue light or just kind of TV and screen time in general for about you know an hour at least before you uh, before you go to bed, right? Like a lot of these things can help with the sleep quality, help you fall asleep faster, so there is no sleep latency. Um, so so these are all things that you can do to improve the quality of sleep that you're getting as well as the duration. Hopefully that helps. Uh, next question is how do you know when to take a deload? So if we refer back to what I was talking about with athlete monitoring. Uh, so how I, how I program deloads for myself is I'll have a certain performance. You know, my performance will be pretty consistent, right? Uh, because my lifestyle is pretty dialed in. I work for myself. Uh, sorry, no, I, don't, I don't work for myself. I, I mean, I, I have my own company, but I work for Kabuki. But um, I basically make my own hours. I, I don't have to be anywhere. I work online. So I have a lot of freedoms, right? So because of that, I can basically ensure that my performance is going to be pretty consistent because all of the external variables or environmental variables are in line to uh, ensure, you know, performance is going to be pretty close to at its, as its, at its best. So if, if we look at performance over time, we say, okay, like I'm doing well here and I'm continuing to make progress. You know, the weights are moving a little faster. Maybe even I'm increasing load over time. All this great stuff is happening. And then all of a sudden I just start feeling maybe a little down. My mood's a little bit down. My sleep is a little bit off. My stress seems to be a little high. Kind of struggling through my training sessions, not necessarily feeling as good. Like maybe I'm, I'm not even like seeing a huge reduction in performance. Like usually just feels a lot harder than, than it than normally is, right? And I'm like, man, like what's going on? And if that goes on for about a week, then I'll usually know like, okay, you know what? I need to deload. But it's not just one thing. It's a combination of things. Now, that's going to be a little bit different for everyone, right? So when I'm looking at an athlete, this is also why I collect a lot of different variables. Because like, again, for me, my, my HRV is fucking stable. Like I could... I could have like a massive tragedy happen and my HRV is, is going to move by maybe a point, you know? So it's very, very stable um, regardless of how stressed I feel or how good I feel. So I'm going to look at numerous factors, right? And if I know, for instance, that an athlete is very high stress, I'm going to look at their, their stress levels. So if I start seeing like a peak in their stress levels, all of a sudden, I can be like, Hey, what's going on, man? Like, do you have stuff going on outside? Do we need to pull back volume a little bit temporarily while you have this really busy push at work? Like what's going on? So that's really a, an important conversation to have with your athlete, but also knowing what it is that you're monitoring, right? So if I'm seeing reduced performance over time as a trend, like over the span of a week, 
that's a good indication for me that I need to deload. For other people, it might be a little bit different depending on their work demands, depending on what's going on outside. But in those cases in particular, I might not deload them. I might just pull back volume just a little bit so they can still push pretty hard and have a high intensity of effort, but they're not doing as much accumulative volume because again, life stress is still stress. And all of that falls under allostatic load. And we have a finite uh, amount of recovery resources. So we do have to factor that in. So I might pull that back just a little bit, just so they can continue training and having productive sessions while still accounting for all the stuff that's going on in their life. So that might not even be a deload for, for them, but that's generally how I look at a deload. You know, I'm looking at their performance. I'm looking at their level of enjoyment. I'm looking at how they're executing the training. I'm looking at uh, their stress levels, their mood, their perception of training. I'm looking at, is their sleep um, starting to be impacted. I'm looking at their diet. Are they starting to veer off their diet? Is their body weight starting to fluctuate? You know, if you're really stressed out and you're not getting good sleep, you might start retaining water a little bit more because your stress is so high and your cortisol is a little bit off, right? So, so you might retain a little bit more water. So there's a lot of things that you can look at to determine whether or not you should be deloading. Now, I personally think that you should kind of deload reactively. I'm not a big fan of planning out deloads because we never we never really know what's going to happen. So I don't really like the whole, you know, three weeks and then one week deload, three weeks, one week deload, you know, because then you're deloading for 25% of the year. That's not a very productive uh, paradigm. So I'll just train until basically I, I say, hey, like, okay, now it's actually time to deload. And then I just take a deload, right? And I do that with all my athletes. <clears throat> so all of my programming uh, with my athletes are done on a weekly basis. I don't program, you know, a month in advance or anything like that. It's all weekly because I look at what's actually going on in the athlete's life. I look at these check-ins, I look at all the data and say what needs to happen in the next week to enhance their performance and moving forward, right? So that's basically how I look at a deload uh, and, and determine whether or not I need to deload an individual, whether it's myself or an athlete that I'm coaching. Next question is, I tip forward when I squat, what exercise should I do to fix this? So I get questions like this actually quite a lot. And here's the thing. If we have an exercise that is supposed to correct X technical faults, you know, like whatever, whatever technical faults we're, we're looking at, it'll only work if it's executed correctly. So it doesn't matter. Like, let, let's say you have a chest fall pattern, like, like in this one, right, where, you know, uh, he tips forward when he's standing up on the squat. So in this case, you might want to strengthen their quads and their upper back and improve their core braces. What is a great exercise for that? Front squats or SSB squats? Well, if they're not doing the exercise properly and they continue falling forward in an SSB squat, well, that's just going to exacerbate the issue because now that's just repatterning that movement over and over and over. So an exercise is a tool, but the effectiveness of the tool is contingent on whether or not it's used properly, right? Like if I have a hammer, but I'm trying to, to hammer a screw into the wall, well, it's not the hammer's fault that it's fucking up the wall. It's the fact that I'm not using a screwdriver. The hammer's not meant to do that, right? So you need to use the tool correctly if we want the results that are purported to be associated with that. So if you have a chest fall pattern where your, your chest falls when you're, when you're standing up, that's usually uh, that the first thing I always look at is technique. Are you technically sound? And one of the most effective ways of doing that in my mind, enhancing technique, is utilizing tempo work. 
The reason why I like tempo work is because we can reduce the absolute load, but still keep intensity of effort very high. It gives you more time in the movement so you can actually feel what's going on. You can feel your bracing. You can feel if something gives out. You can feel if you relax. You can feel if you shift. You can feel if you lose position. So I'm a big fan of long tempo squats. So for instance, one of my athletes um, a couple months ago was always arching their back when they squat down. You don't want to arch your back. You want to load your hips and maintain a neutral position. We're not looking to arch the back. And, and that's kind of a whole different conversation. So I don't necessarily want to go down that rabbit hole because it is a little bit nuanced and complex. But uh, for this individual, I had them doing tempo squats with six seconds down, two second pause at the bottom. This is a fucking hard lift to do for like five reps, right? Like I was getting them to do it for three to five reps. So the reason for that is because you've got six seconds, one, two, three, four, five, six. That's a long time to be descending in a squat, right? So when you do that, you are forced to feel the position. You feel whether you're braced, you feel all of that stuff. And then when you come up, you can make sure you are prioritizing that new technique that you're trying to develop, okay? And because the load is lighter, it's gonna allow you to still push really hard and be really taxed afterwards, but you're not gonna incur the same kind of fatigue and you will be able to alter your technique because the load is not gonna throw you out of position, right? Now, strength is a skill. So you have to practice that at high intensities as well if you want it to stick. But a good place to start generally is looking at tempo work. That's one of my favorites. Another thing to look at, you know, assuming it's not technical and it's actually a muscular weakness. And when I say muscular weakness, I'm talking about weakness relative to the other musculature in your body, okay? A lot of the times when you see the chest pull pattern, it's you hit the hole, then the hips shoot up and the knees shoot back and you tip forward. That's a very common squat pattern. What that's indicative of, one is again, technique, but assuming it's not technique, assuming you've done all the technical corrections and it just won't stick, well, now we could potentially be looking at a muscular imbalance. So in that case, which is very common, usually what we're looking at is insufficient strength of the knee extensors. So the knee extensors being the quads. If the quads cannot effectively generate enough force to stand up, what happens is they will shoot back. You'll try and straighten the knees as fast as possible, but because they're not strong enough to lift the weight up, what happens is you get pinned and it pushes the hips up and straightens the shins out. So it offloads load and torque requirements from the knees onto the hips. Once they're on the hips, now you have better leverage and you can kind of good morning the weight up because your hips are stronger relative to your quads. So what you want to do in that instance is load the shit out of your quads in positions that are going to punish you if you do that technical fault again. So a zombie squat or a front squat could be fantastic for that. If you tip forward in a zombie squat, that bar is dumping forward. So you are going to be forced to train that position. You're going to be forced to train your upper back, your core bracing, and your quads like crazy. So that can be a very, very effective exercise. Bulgarian split squats could be a very effective adjunct. Some um, heavy leg press or hack squats or something like that to load the shit out of your quads and not really bias the hips as much can be very, very effective. And once you see that coming up, well, then your squat might improve and you might actually be able to maintain position better because your squat, your quad, sorry, your knee extension uh, strength is, is much better, right? So um, that's, that's basically, you know, th those are two different ways to kind of attack it. I would always look at technique first because nine times out of 10, 
any of these issues are technical in nature and not necessarily mobility related or muscular or anything like that. And then after we've, we've uh, you know, made sure that it's not purely a technical issue, then I would use things like the tempo work, the front squats, zombie squats, things like that. Um, hopefully that answers your question. Next question is, if your program is designed properly, do you think linear progression works even for advanced athletes? Uh, yeah, I mean, it can work and it will work for a period. The, the thing is, how long is it going to work for, right? That's ultimately what it comes down to. So when you're a new athlete, there is so much potential for growth because you can't even access 100% of your uh, muscular force that you could produce. Your body actually will not allow it because you're not safe in those positions and your body will sense instability and poor motor coordination. So it won't allow you to do that to protect you from getting injured. That's one of the reasons why you can get so strong so quickly as a new athlete. These are the newbie gains people talk about. Most of this is to do with uh, technical development and just neurological uh, efficiency and improvement uh, as opposed to actually you know, getting increases in strength. You're, you're getting an improvement in strength expression at a very rapid rate because your nervous system is becoming a little bit more attuned to these motor patterns, right? But as an advanced athlete, again, if we go back to athlete monitoring and we look how complex an organism is, right? They might have a fight with their spouse, you know, when they're supposed to hit like a really, really big lift on that day. Well, okay, but if they have a really big fight, that might be draining and that might cause them a lot of stress and they come in. And they may not be able to perform as well as they as well as they normally would. Maybe they're really overworked because it's a busy season for their job and they're just really exhausted and so they can't do it. So the thing with linear progression is, is that life is not linear. And, and because of that, that kind of throws a bit of a wrench in, in the in the system. So the reason why, or one of the reasons why uh, advanced athletes need a little bit more undulation is because they they just they're they're constantly working so hard. And they're much higher along in terms of their genetic potential. So we need to be able to kind of account for some of these things, right? Um, and generally, when you see an advanced athlete, their lifestyle generally is a little bit more predictable. Generally, not always, but generally, right? So they've dedicated, you know, 10, 15 years. It's obviously something they care about. So their lifestyle is probably going to be a little bit more attuned to perform well uh, in, in, their, in their sport as a lifter, right? But, <clears throat> you know, let, let's say let's say you're, you're, you know, lifting a certain amount of weight, right? You're, you're squatting 800 pounds or something like that. And you do um, a heavy volume day or something like that. And then you have a higher intensity day, like or later on or something like that. Well, that fatigue accumulates. And if it accumulates week over week, you're probably not gonna be able to do that for very long and continue improving, right? So there's other ways to progress that aren't necessarily due to load progressions. Uh, a very simple example of that, and this is what usually you'll see with, with uh, higher level athletes, is you need to be a little bit sneakier because the fatigue they generate is so high because they can just push so hard and they're so strong, right? So you can't always just kind of keep going on the same program and keep adding weight, keep adding weight, keep adding weight. They're going to tap out pretty quick, right? So what you can do, though, is you can have like sneaky little progression strategies. Um, a really simple example of that, for instance, is let's say you do a top set of five on the bench press, and then you do back offs at 90% um, of your top set for five reps as well, 
okay? Now you've accumulated a certain amount of tonnage and you've accumulated a certain amount of exposure at, at a heavy weight, and then you've dropped it back. Now, not, not super heavy, because let's say it's, you know, an RPH or whatever, that's not crazy, but it is, you know, the peak load of that day. Now, maybe the next week you do top set of five again, but instead of doing back offs at 90% of your, of your top set, now you're doing back offs at the same load, but for less reps. So now you're, instead of doing, you know, back offs at five reps at 90% of your, your top set, now you're doing back offs at three reps at the same load of your top set, right? So now you're getting more exposure to the top load. We're not increasing load on the top set, we're, we're increasing load in the back off sets or in the back off work, right? But we're decreasing repetitions, okay? Which is a way that we can kind of constrain the amount of fatigue we're generating while still getting good exposure to the heavier weight. Now that's week two, let's say week three, let's say we've got to four total sets of, of, uh, of bench press, right? Now in week three, maybe we do two top sets. So maybe we go two top sets, same load. Okay, so we repeat it. So now we get more exposure to the heavier weight for higher volume. And then we do our other two back off sets for three reps at the same load. So now we have more absolute volume occurring at that intensity. Then we go to week four. Maybe in week four, we drop it back to one top set, back offset three, three sets of 90%. But the top set, now we go up 2.5 kilos, right? So it took four weeks to go up 2.5 kilos, but we're substantially stronger, right? Because if we were to do two top sets and then the back off, all that stuff on week one, we probably wouldn't be able to handle it. But we've kind of built up that tolerance over time. So that's, that's like one kind of, that's one progression strategy. It's very, just kind of off the top of my head, but there's so many that you could use. Right. So you kind of need to be a little bit sneaky with advanced athletes. And again, all of this stuff, all of it is entirely dependent on the individual athlete you're coaching. So coaching should be a feed forward program. You look at what the athlete is responding to, and that informs future decisions uh, for, for the programming of that individual. Right. There are certain strategies that I think are fantastic that just don't work for some people. There's other ones that I generally don't use that much, but I know they work for some individuals, so I use them all the freaking time for them, right? And it's really, really effective. So it really is an athlete-driven uh, approach, right? It's not like, oh, do you do linear progression or do you do this or you do that? It's like, do whatever the athlete responds to. That's what you should be doing instead of being tied to a particular model, right? Um, do I ever use volume? Sorry, this is the next question. Do I ever use volume blocks when training for strength? Uh, no. So I do concurrent training. Um, a lot of the programming that I do with my athletes is concurrent in nature and I'll kind of differentiate concurrent training from West side. Um, concurrent training is training for multiple characteristics at one time. That has sometimes been conflated with conjugate and West side when they're not the same. Yes, West side uses concurrent training, but concurrent training is not West side, right? Hopefully that makes sense. So um, when, when I do concurrent training, there, there's a handful of reasons that I do that, um, but not super important at this point. Um, one of the reasons though, is that if I'm coaching a powerlifter, I always want them being exposed to specific stimulus. So I always want them doing a heavy single, a heavy triple, a heavy something, no matter where they are in the competitive season, because strength is a skill. So they need that exposure. Now, they're not always lifting super heavy all the time, but let's say you're far away from a meet. And so we are going to pump up some volume a little bit. 
So let's say we're far away from a meet, but I get you to do, um, so here, here's an example, actually. I have, one, I have one strongman athlete, he's in prep right now. And um, he's, uh, right now I have him like on the log press, I have him doing a top single at an eight. So he does one log press, like a clean in, a clean in uh, press, whatever on the log. And then he does back off works, back off work at, uh, for eight reps at, at an RP eight. Okay, so he's got a top single at an RP8, then he's got back off work for volume at our for eight reps at RP8. Okay, so that's a little bit higher volume, let's say, but it's not necessarily a volume block, right? Um, like I said, all my coaching is on a weekly basis. So like, if you're looking at it, I guess if you kind of expand or extrapolate it out, you could kind of like, you'll be able to see like, okay, he's doing more volume here. Here's a little bit more intensity focus. Here's this, here's that. But I don't necessarily have like a, a delineation between like, here's a volume block and here's a this. I'm just like, what's going to get this athlete strong? So I don't necessarily care. Um, and, and if you look at my programming, because it is on a weekly basis, it really is contingent on what that athlete is going to respond to. Um, I have athletes who respond super freaking well to volume so we do a lot of volume all the way up until the meet basically and that that just works really well for them i have other athletes who don't respond well to volume um and they just do really well with high intensity you can kind of handle that all year round basically and then do really really well recover really well from that but if i were to give them some more volume they just get trashed and they just can't handle it so i think there is something to be said in pushing that to a point because you don't want them to be getting out of shape you do want them to be stacking muscle and stuff like that but we only need to get so much of that and that's one of the reasons why i don't generally look at it like do you do I, like I, I don't generally look at it and say i'm going to build a volume block um the goal is always the goal right if, if they want to become super fucking strong and squat bench and deadlift they have to squat bench and deadlift really fucking heavy all the time um but how you do that and how you get away with that without getting injured that's that's where good programming comes into play Right. So, like I said, if I have someone really far out, I'll still get them doing, you know, reasonably heavy stuff, but like a single at an eight or a single at an RPE seven, like that, that's not, that's not fatiguing, right? Like a power lifter can do that. No problem. Um, <clears throat> and then do his volume work, you know? So it, that's not going to be an issue for someone. They're not doing like tons of that, that far out, Like they're not doing tons of doubles and triples when they're that far out, but they're still getting some exposure. So they're maintaining the skill of squat bench deadlift or, you know, the skill of whatever it is they're doing based on whatever goals they have, right? Next question. Uh, how do I train boxing and powerlifting together? So right now I'm actually not training boxing and powerlifting together. Um, I got back into boxing a couple months ago, was absolutely loving it. But uh, then I ran into some, some health issues, uh, not, not from boxing, just health issues for myself. And, uh, Basically, my stress was just incredibly high. Uh, I wasn't sleeping. I was sleeping like, you know, four hours a night. Like, it was just really, really tough for, for weeks on end. Um, and there's a lot of stuff going on kind of in the background as well. So I actually decided that I was going to just stop boxing for the time being until I was able to get all this stuff sorted out. Um, now I'm actually feeling pretty good. I'm on the mend. Um, my sleep has improved significantly. My stress has been going down. So I am feeling a whole lot better. Uh, that being said, I'm probably not going to get back into boxing until after shell shock. Um, that's the next competition going to be in August. But to answer your question, I guess a little bit more specifically to give a little bit more of an applied version. I think like 
people always think that, you know, if you're a powerlifter, you can't do anything else. That's not true at all. There's tons of phenomenal athletes who are multi-sport athletes. Like look at fucking Ian, the rhino man, like Ian Daniels. Um, I've had him on the podcast and we we've kind of stayed friends. We chatted, you know, uh, quite, quite a bit actually. And that dude's a fucking unit, man. Like he is shredded. He's jacked. He's super athletic and insanely strong. Like he's a fucking beast. You look at uh, Nam, right? Like Nam Thomas, he's a bodybuilder, a powerlifter, a sprinter, like dude's a fucking unit. You look at Steffi Cohen, what she's done. She was an Olympic weightlifter. She was playing soccer. She was a powerlifter. Now she's doing boxing, right? And so like you, you can absolutely be a fantastic athlete. Now there is a point of diminishing returns, of course. Like if you want to be a legitimate boxer, like a legitimate professional boxer, not just, oh, I went pro, but a legitimate contender in boxing. There's no fucking way you're going to do well at powerlifting. There's, there's no way, right? You're going to have to sacrifice that. But if you just want to be quite good at something and, and you want to be also good at powerlifting, you can absolutely do that. So you can box and become very skilled. Um, the main thing here is just to go slow. Don't go into this other, you know, like if you're doing boxing or if you're doing CrossFit or if you're doing, you know, whatever else that it is you're doing, mountain biking or something, don't go crazy with it. Start with one day a week and do that for a couple of weeks. And that might sound like, oh, that's not enough at all. Man, if you, if you care about your performance, just start slow, right? And when you go there, don't look at it, oh, this is just one day per week, so I'm, I'm fine, I can go really hard. No, you probably can't, and you probably shouldn't, or else it is going to impact your, your performance, right, in, in powerlifting. So make sure you start slow, right? If you go to boxing, like when I was going to boxing, I was only hitting with about 40% power when I was hitting the bags, 40% power. I was doing one minute on, two minutes off. That's not a lot of work. And my training would be about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes long, right? So I'm not doing tons and tons of work, but I was fucking exhausted. Like my shoulders hurt, my Achilles tendons hurt from moving around like that because I'm 275, right? Like I can't move around that fast anymore. Like I need to train that ability so I can be explosive and light on my feet and agile. So that takes time. So then after a couple of weeks, I started upping it to 60% power that I was punching with. I started doing calf raises and isometrics and like eccentric calf raises and things like that. I started hitting, uh, I started doing different types of bag work to get, you know, um, different types of stimulus on, on my shoulders and on my body, right? And, and I kept going, but not super hard. And it wasn't until about six weeks in that I actually started skipping for the first time. I would do 30 seconds of skipping and a minute off because at the time that was all my Achilles tendons could handle or else they would just get progress. Like I could tell if I did it, sure, I'd be fine. But then three weeks in, I'd be like, yeah, I'm fucked. I need to go to the, like someone and get some help for rehab because now I'm injured, right? Like I knew that that was going to happen. So I went real slow. And then again, it took me a couple of months before I was actually hitting with like 90% power, moving around like I wanted to, doing full three minute rounds of sparring. Like that took months, right? And, and I was only going once a week for the first while. And then I upped it to two times a week, right? So the biggest thing is you can go and you can do other stuff, but you have to be intelligent about it. You have to go slow, go slow, and then just see how it goes, see how you recover because fatigue is accumulative and that's really important. So 
not going to really talk about that anymore. Um, next question is, what do I think of Jefferson curls? Um, I, I like Jefferson curls. Um, for me personally, they give me a bit of a buffer for injury risk mitigation. So um, I do feel like they have a protective effect against injury. Uh, I don't believe that spinal flexion or extension under load is, is really dangerous inherently. I think there's definitely context where it can be dangerous, but I don't think there's any inherent dangerous danger to that. And I also don't think that there's any actual good research to support that. Again, we're talking inherently versus specific context. So yes, I could fucking give you context where it's like, yeah, it's gonna be a bad idea and you probably will get injured. But in my context in particular, right? Movement is not dangerous. Bending over and flexing your spine and picking up a kid or picking up something like that's not dangerous, right? And so if you think about that, then you're like, okay, well, obviously there's a certain threshold where it can become dangerous. You know, what might that look like? And that's where each individual is going to have to make that decision for themselves. Now, I don't generally program Jefferson curls for many people. I program it for myself. And I think I have one person doing it right now, right? But it's pretty rare that I actually do program that for people because <clears throat> for me, it's, a, it's an injury risk mitigation thing. And it's building up resiliency. For the individual that I'm programming it for, it's the exact same thing. If I'm just looking to strengthen someone's posterior chain, I'm going to choose RDLs or something like that or stiff leg deadlift. Like those are going to be really good and they're more sports specific anyways. It's going to have a higher translation to their actual deadlift nine times out of 10. So I'm not going to program a Jefferson curl. Generally, I like it for building up resiliency in the back, resiliency in the posterior chain. Um, that's why I like it. And for me, like I'm up to doing it with about 400 pounds off like a, a six or eight inch deficit, really, really flexing my back and then coming up doing that for sets of like eight to 10. <clears throat> or maybe not quite 400 yet. I think like maybe 385 or something like that, but pretty close, right? And I can do that. And I actually feel great doing it. Now, is that a recommendation for other people to go out and do it? No, this is something that I do. Like I said, there's not a lot of good research to suggest. In fact, there's not really any good research to suggest that spinal flexion and extension under load is inherently dangerous. Right? When you look at all the different sports of all the different athletes who are loading their spine in flexed and extended positions, who experience high impact, um, you know, in, in high impact sports like football or something like that, you look at the positioning of the spine, we don't see an increased risk of injury. But a big reason for that is because tolerance is built over time. Positional tolerance is likely more related to the risk of injury than a specific movement is in general, right? So movement isn't inherently dangerous. Movement that is not where the individual is not prepared, that's dangerous, right? That can be dangerous. And that does present an increased risk of, of injury. So for instance, I've been doing this exercise for a while, right? So I have a bit more of, you know, a bit more uh, resiliency through my back. And it actually is, is protective for me. But if I didn't build up to that. And I just went and I tried to do that on, on my first time trying them. Sure, I'm strong enough to do that, but I probably fucking pull something because I wasn't used to it. I'm not used to pulling in a really flexed spinal position. So more important than what position is your back in, you have to look at, are you prepared to do that? Are you trained to do that? Like, look at, look at strong men, right? When they're, when they're doing a fucking uh, a stone lift, they're super rounded. 
right? They're really rounded. They're, there's a lot of exercises where people are doing a movement where their backs are very, very rounded. And that doesn't necessarily present with an increased risk of injury, but that's also because they've been doing it for so damn long, right? So I think that's a really, really important thing to understand. Um, like I said, from a performance standpoint, Jefferson curl is probably not a very good exercise um, for boosting performance, for boosting resiliency. Yeah, that could be potentially pretty good. But again, it's individual dependent and context dependent. So it's not like I'm going to sit here and make a broad recommendation to anyone. Um, next question. What do I think is a big mistake people make when dieting? Man, there's a lot. Uh, probably the biggest one, though, is that people try and go from zero to 100 right? They, they, they look at where they're at, and then they look at the ideal, and they say, okay, I need to be at the ideal. But the funny thing about that is that you would never do that for any other context. Like, you would never go to university, and on your first day, say, you know what, fuckers, I'm ready to write my master's thesis and defend it same day. You would never do that, because you're not prepared to do that. There's so much learning that goes on. It takes years and years and years to get your master's, to get the experience, to get the education and the wherewithal to actually write a proper thesis and then defend it. But for some reason, people think that dieting is not a skill and therefore they can go from zero to a hundred. And in my opinion, that's the equivalent of saying, I'm going to write my master's thesis and defend it on the first day of university very likely it's not a good idea. And if anyone wants to argue that, okay, well, let's look at the over 90% rate of recidivism for diets. It's not that great, right? Like when we look at a population level, we see very, very um, depressing figures. Now, population data is different than individual data, which, which, is, which is a little bit more, um, uh, a, a little bit more Gosh, I can't even think of the word. Uh, let's say less depressing, <laughs> a little bit more positive, right? But going from zero to one is an exceptionally better strategy than going from zero to 100, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't go to a squat bar being like, oh, my goal is to squat 500 pounds and load 500 pounds and try and squat it. And like, well, if I keep failing, eventually I'll do it. It's like, no, you're not, you're just going to keep getting hurt. You know, that's all that's going to happen. So, you know, like you have to think about it. If, if your lifestyle is, is really, really important to diet or adherence, then you have to adapt your lifestyle to the diet or you have to adapt your diet to the lifestyle. And over time, your lifestyle ends up adapting because this just becomes a part of who you are, right? So, or at least it's a possibility. So, you know, it's really important to understand that how you start is not how you finish. You know, like I might have an individual um, who, if I'm coaching them on nutrition, I might set a, a daily step count. You know, maybe their daily step count is like 1,000. I might just say, you know what, I just want you to hit 2,000. That's not a lot. That's not even really that close to, to the threshold of baseline cardiovascular health just not to fucking die, right? It's not even very close to that. To, to really get those benefits, you're looking at like eight to 10,000 steps-ish, something, something along those lines right? And it, it's not like going from one to 2000 has no difference. It's just a very small difference, but they do that for a while. Then we move to 3000, then 4,000, five, six, seven, and eight. And now boom, now they're in that great range where their health is significantly improving. We're, we're managing effectively energy expenditure, at least in one way. 
and we can potentially lose some additional weight just by getting increased steps in and just by increasing the uh, energy expenditure side of the energy balance equation. Then on top of that, we're making small but progressive changes to their diet. We're doing things in an iterative fashion. So we're building upon skills. As the individual becomes competent, they keep progressing. But we don't progress them until they've developed the type of confidence, sorry, competence to actually enact those behaviors on a very consistent basis. So I think it's very important to understand that everything is iterative. Just because we created a plan doesn't even mean that that plan is necessarily going to be the right plan. We might have to change that plan. We might have to scrap it and say, you know what, we need something else. And that's fine because that's what coaching is. Um, or if you're self-coached, that's what you need to do. If you want to be successful in the long term, you need to be able to, to iterate the program, you need to be able to develop and build on past successes. So it's very important to give an individual success and to be able to kind of build on those over time and going slowly. And it's not even slowly, it's like as you start to progress, then you'll be able to pick things up faster, but you need a baseline level of experience, right? And then as you get that, learning new concepts, implementing new strategies, all that stuff is going to become easier because you have the foundation already established. So hopefully that makes sense. That is actually the last question for the day. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope that that was helpful. Again, if you like the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you give me a five-star review uh, so I can continue putting out solid content uh, to help coaches and athletes basically become better coaches. All right. Thank you so much, guys. I will see you on the next episode.